One of the first things you learn when you get into the military is that there are standards that you must achieve and maintain. In the Army, for instance, there are physical fitness standards that you have to achieve and maintain. You're introduced to these when you first arrive at basic training. When you arrive, say, at Fort Benning, Georgia, where I went to basic training, uh, you're sent to a reception area where you're processed into the Army. Reception is where you're given your high-speed, low-drag GI haircut, you swap your jeans for camouflage, and you take your very first physical fitness test. Now, the first physical fitness test at, you take there at reception is pretty easy. All you have to do is 13 correct push-ups. If you fail to do 13 correct push-ups, you are sent to the FTU. Now, FTU is the fitness training unit, which is affectionately called the fat and tubby unit. In FTU, you'll do extra physical training until you're able to complete 13 correct push-ups. Once you're able to do those 13 correct push-ups, you're sent on to your basic training unit. Infantry basic training is 13 weeks long, and at the very end, you'll take the Army physical fitness test. The physical fitness test, when I did it, was three tasks. There were three tasks. First, you had to do as many correct push-ups as you could in two minutes, as many sit-ups as you could in two minutes, and then run two miles as fast as you possibly could. You're given a percentage grade based on the number of push-ups you do, the number of sit-ups you do, and how long it takes you to run the two miles. The minimum standard for basic training is 60% in all three events. Those who achieve the minimum standard of 60% graduate and become infantry soldiers. They are then shipped off to their regular units. Those who fail to meet the 60% standard are given at least one more chance to take the test. If they fail again, they are discharged from the army And they're sent home. And all that they went through for the last 13 weeks was in vain because they're never going to be infantry soldiers. Now, when you arrive at your unit, you continue to take physical fitness tests. But most infantry units raise the standard from 60% to 70, upwards of 80%. And if you fail to pass that, then you're flagged. And what that means is basically nothing good can happen to you. You can't get promoted, you can't go to schools, you can't get any awards, you can't go on leave, you can't do basically anything fun or positive will happen in your life. And if you fail again, you're discharged from the army and you're sent home. The army doesn't really waver in their standard for physical fitness. Any soldier who does not meet that standard will not be a soldier very long. Now, probably we're not surprised to find out the military has standards. But what we might be surprised to find out is that God also has standards that he expects from his people. It is a standard of righteousness. And the standard of righteousness, it is unchanging and it is unwavering. Christians, uh, the scripture teaches that those who do not meet this standard, they are not actually Christians at all. They're not part of the kingdom of God and heaven will not be their home. The standard of righteousness is pretty high, and that's what we're going to look at today. Open your Bible to Matthew 5, verse 17 is where we're going to start. It's page 736 in your pew Bible, and if you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so, 
shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The title of the message is God's Standard for Righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today with a desire to be righteous, to do righteous, to be who you want us to be, God, and to do all the things that you want us to do. Fathers, we look at your word today. We need your Holy Spirit to come and illuminate our minds, for him to come and to make it clear what Jesus meant in this passage so that, Lord, we would know what it meant. We could apply it to our lives and we could live in the way that you would have us to live. Father, today fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Give us ears to hear, hearts to obey. Work in us and through us and for us to accomplish your will in our lives so that we could go out into a dark and a dying world and we would be lights that shine brightly for Jesus. We ask all of this in his name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now Jesus says in verse 20, That we cannot be a part of the kingdom of heaven unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, it's easy for us to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. But particularly for those of us who have been raised in church and likely have a negative view of the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, after all, they rejected Jesus. They plotted his death. They paid off one of his disciples to betray him. They knowingly had false witnesses testify against him. And they turned him over to Pilate to be murdered. All the while knowing he was innocent of any crime. They just didn't like him. Is really all that it boiled down to. So it's easy enough for us to, to look at what we know about the Pharisees. And to have a mindset that would say, great, well that's easy. Because I am, I am way better than those guys all on my own. But to look at Jesus' words with that mindset completely misses the point Jesus was making. In the people that heard Jesus speak, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was no small thing. Most people considered them to be the most righteous people in the world. In fact, the the scribes and the Pharisees were considered to be so righteous that a common saying was, if only two men go to heaven, one would be a scribe, the other Would be a Pharisee. Those that heard Jesus say these words would have concluded that the standard of unrighteousness was, or the standard of righteousness was unreachable. Yet Jesus said that we can never enter the kingdom of heaven until we meet it. He didn't say that we had to have the same level of righteousness the scribes and the Pharisees had, but that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, in that light, it seems pretty critical for us to understand what Jesus meant here. Because that is the standard of righteousness that we must meet if we are to call heaven our home, to say that we are indeed children of God. So how do we understand this? I want to give you, there's three, three actions to take, I guess you'd say, that we have to do in order to understand this. And then at the end, I'll give you the main point, the key truth that we have to know. So that our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. First, we have to recognize our personal lack of righteousness. Recognize my personal lack of righteousness. Now many people 
consider themselves righteous because of the good things that they do. Right? We may focus on being good moral people, may give to charities. Uh, some join churches and are baptized. Others help people in their time of need. And these are all good things. But those things in and of themselves do not make anyone righteous. Right? And the reason is we are already unrighteous. Right? But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. And we all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have carried us or taken us away. Now, I've told this before, but if you've never heard it, let me remind you of the, the word picture of filthy rags and what it means. Right? It, it pictures a cloth that's used to wrap up a putrid running sore such as you might find on a leper. Now, if you've ever read stories about leprosy from Jesus' day, you know that part of leprosy was having running, oozing sores. They, they smelled terrible. And from what I understand, they could infect, or at least they were understood to have been able to infect anyone who touched them. Right? And so in order to keep from just having an open running sore, the lepers would wrap cloth around the sores and they would keep them there until the pus ran out of the cloth and was kind of oozing over the top of it, in which case they would unwrap it and they would put some more on it. Well, what do you do with the cloth that has been used? Well, it wasn't able to be cleaned. It was so filthy and it was so unclean, they were taken and they were burned, never to be used again. Right? And that cloth that is fouled by leprosy, that is part of the picture that Isaiah is painting by saying all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. Now, most of us, we cannot even imagine touching a rag like that. Much less lifting it up and saying, look, look at what I did. Isn't this awesome? And yet, according to Isaiah, when we point to all of our good deeds and say, look, God, look at how good I am. Look at all the charities I gave to. Look at my high morals. Look at the kind of husband or the wife that I am. Look at how good I am. It's the equivalent of lifting up that filthy, wretched rag. With pride and joy at what we had accomplished. And keep in mind, when Isaiah says this, he doesn't say our sinful deeds are like filthy rags. He says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So the very best that we can do apart from Christ is that. There are no good deeds that we can do apart from Jesus, to make ourselves righteous. This isn't just the Old Testament. The New Testament bears it out as well. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Now think of justification as being made righteous. Think of the law in this case. We'll talk more about the law later. But for now, in this point, as the Ten Commandments. The point that Paul is making is there is no amount of law-keeping that will make us righteous. We will never keep the Ten Commandments good enough to be righteous on our own. But, here's the thing. Here's the reality of it. I don't know anyone who tries to keep the Ten Commandments and says, because I keep the Ten Commandments, I'm righteous. Do you? Most people I know that point to their good deeds, rather than taking up the Ten Commandments, they make up their own little moral code. Now, they may take some from the law, you know, you shall not kill. Or they'll take some from Jesus, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. 
And then they, they add their own personal ideas and their own personal morality with it. And so most people, their moral code that they say, I do this and so I'm righteous, it's sort of a mishmash of all kinds of things, different religions and different ideas and, and different philosophies and then their own personal ethics. But think about this. If, according to Scripture, no one will ever be righteous by their adherence to the law God Himself made, God Himself gave, how much less will a personal, man-made code of morality be able to produce righteousness? It won't. It can't. Ever. No one will ever be righteous by the things that they do. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with the understanding that we cannot be righteous on our own. Not now, not ever. So what do we do? We turn to Jesus for His righteousness. Turn to Jesus for His righteousness. Jesus said in verse 17 that He did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but He came to fulfill. Now the idea of fulfilling the law is carrying it out or completing it. This means that Jesus came to accomplish all that was intended in the law and the prophets. But to understand what, what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand what He means by the law and the prophets. Right In the broad sense, the law referred to the first five books of the Old Testament that were written by Moses. In a narrower sense, the law referred to the system of legislation given to Moses by God that governed every aspect of Jewish life. Now, there were two basic aspects or two basic parts of the law. There was the moral law and the ceremonial or the sacrificial law. The moral law was the Ten Commandments and all the stuff that flowed out of the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law governed the offerings and the sacrifices that were made in connection to worship of God in the temple, sacrifices made for sins and things along those lines. So the question is, how did Jesus fulfill the law? He fulfilled the moral law by doing what no one else could do. He did actually keep all Ten Commandments perfectly. He never sinned. Not in thought or deed or priority or action. He kept the law down to the tiniest detail. His keeping of the law was so exact that when it came time for the the Pharisees and the religious leaders to accuse him, they could not find even one person who could legitimately accuse him of anything wrong. He had kept the law to such an extent that even the false witnesses they brought against him made up things and they did not agree. There were no two people who could come up with the same thing that they thought Jesus did. He he completely and fully obeyed every aspect of the moral law. He did it perfectly. Now Jesus says in verse 18 that, that till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot nor one tittle will pass away from the law. So all is fulfilled. Now the jot and the tittle were the smallest parts of the Hebrew alphabet. The jot would be about the size of a comma. The tittle was like the stroke of a pen that distinguished one letter from another. Think about the difference between a capital F and a capital E. But the only difference is that small little line at the bottom. And that's basically what a tittle is. Now Jesus is saying that until heaven and earth pass away... Even the smallest parts of God's law will not pass away. Instead, they will all be fulfilled. 
This means that God's law and the standard of righteousness laid out in the law, it is absolute. It'll never be changed. It'll never be modified. And it'll never go away. The demands of the law are permanent. They cannot be abridged or reduced until heaven and earth pass away. And the idea of till heaven and earth pass away is that they will stand until the end of time. Instead of being passing away, they will all be fulfilled. What that means is, in some ways, the standards of God's righteousness as laid out in the law must be fulfilled. But not only that, because the law not only laid out a standard for righteousness, the law also laid out a punishment for sin. And that too will be fulfilled. The punishment for sin will come to pass. That's why according to verse 19, that if you break the least of these commandments and teach others, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, honestly, my opinion, and you can disagree with me, but I think I'm right. I don't think there is a greater and a lesser in the kingdom of heaven. I think the picture is, if I teach you that you can break God's moral law and that you're going to be okay with God by living in what He calls sin, if I teach that, rather than me being going to heaven and being okay, I think it's a sign that I'm really not a part of the kingdom of heaven at all. It's a sign I've never truly been born again myself. Because if I've been born again, the Spirit of God's living within me, I'm not going to be able to tell you, oh, oh yeah, well, what God said about holiness, no, that's not real, or that, that God's morals have changed, God's law, no, the punishment for sin, no, 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 that doesn't count, that's not real any longer. I think it's a sign that we're really not a part of the kingdom of heaven to begin with. Now, now Jesus not only flawlessly fulfilled the moral code, he also flawlessly fulfilled the ceremonial or the sacrificial law through his death on the cross. Now, the law is important for our understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. In a very real way, what Jesus did can only be understood as seeing it as the fulfilling of the demands of the law. The law said that sin had to be punished and that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission for sins. So Jesus perfectly fulfilled the moral code by doing all that God said to do. And then he went to the cross and he perfectly fulfilled the ceremonial law vicariously. He fulfilled it in our place. By dying on the cross, he took the punishment that the law demanded for sins. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that there's a lot that the Bible talks about in the Old Testament about the sacrifice for sins. Like the book of Leviticus. I mean, that's mostly what it's about. If you do this, you kill this, and you do this, and you kill that, and then on this day you kill this, and on this day you kill that. All of that, all of that is important for us as New Testament believers because it, it points to Jesus. Right? All of that shows us really the extent of sin. That when there is sin, something has to die. Blood must be shed. That's how serious sin against a holy God is. And Jesus, by perfectly fulfilling the moral law, His sacrifice in fulfilling the the sacrificial law is able to be given to others. He was not guilty, and yet He died. And that made it possible for His righteousness that He had to be given to other people. Now, righteousness then is not obtained by ignoring what the law says. 
not obtained by trying to change it. It's not obtained by ignoring what the law says about the punishment for sin. Instead, righteousness is obtained by substitution. And that's what Jesus was. On the cross, He was our substitute. On the cross, Jesus took the wrath and the punishment of God against our sin. And thereby fulfilling the ceremonial and the sacrificial aspects of the law. And in doing so, Jesus made it possible for us to have something that we could never have on our own. A righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Bible says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. When we repent of our sins and believe on Jesus Christ, a transfer happens. God transfers our guilt for sin to what Jesus did on the cross. And He transfers Jesus' righteousness to us. At this point, we are declared righteous by God through faith. It's God declaring us righteous because of Jesus and what He's done. It's not a righteousness based upon our good deeds. It's not a righteousness that minimizes our sin. Instead, it is a righteousness that is based upon Jesus Christ and what He has done. It's based upon that alone. So right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You, are, you have the righteousness of God. It's as though you've never sinned in God's eyes. How great is that? Right, that's the picture of what happens in the, uh, the picture of what happens when we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ. But those who receive righteousness from Jesus, it changes them. They live differently than they did before, and that leads us to the third aspect of having God's standard for righteousness, and that is we live. By the high standards of Jesus' righteousness. Now throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in chapter 5, Jesus explains that receiving His righteousness, it leads to us doing righteous. But He doesn't leave it in a vague sort of way. He, He gives very specific examples about how being righteous leads to doing righteous. And what he's basically saying in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is that those who have received his righteousness, they live righteously like he did. They fulfill the the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. Now, to obey the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, is to obey what the, the law specifically said, but to be unconcerned with what the law fully meant. Let me give you a story illustrates this well. A friend of mine had a teenage son who had a friend staying over and they kept going outside way late at night when they were supposed to be in bed or at least in the house. Finally, after the fourth or fifth time of catching them out way late at night, he got them outside, brought them in the house, put them in their room and said, do not go outside this door again. And then he went to bed. A little bit later, he heard them outside again. And he went outside and he was getting ready to read them the riot act. And he said, I told you. Not to set foot outside your door again. And his son assured him they had not set foot outside the door. Because they climbed out the window. Right? Now they had obeyed the letter of the law. They had not crossed the door. The spirit of the law was clearly stay in the house. Stay in 
your room. One of the major errors of the scribes and the Pharisees was they obeyed the letter of the law, but not the spirit. Jesus gives several examples of this throughout the rest of the chapter, and he shows us how to live by his standard of righteousness. Right? Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to them of old, you shall not murder. But whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and hand you over to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, the average scribe or Pharisee would never murder anyone. But they had no problems letting their anger cause them to curse others, to call them names, to declare them as fools, to let that anger rupture the relationship and keep it ruptured forever. But the disciple of Jesus, well, they're not only going to refuse to murder, but in their anger, they're not even going to curse people. They're not even going to condemn them. They're not going to to say those sort of demeaning things about them. The disciple of Jesus is going to take this so seriously that when they know someone has something against them, they are going to take the initiative to go to them and do everything they can to fix that relationship. That's the the standard of righteousness that Jesus lives by and that those who have received His righteousness live by. Now look at verse 27. You have heard it was said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, That whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, the average scribe or Pharisee, they would never commit adultery. But they saw nothing wrong with having sexual fantasies about women other than their wives. But the disciple of Jesus, not only will they not commit adultery, they won't even entertain lustful thoughts about someone that's not their spouse. They will fight against that to such an extent that they will remove anything and everything from their life that leads them to that sort of sin, regardless of... Of the cost or the difficulty with that. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard it was said to those. Lost my train of thought. Okay. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than this is from the evil one. Now the average scribe or Pharisee would never break an oath. But 
they had worked out a system where only certain oaths were binding. But the disciple of Jesus, they're not going to take oaths at all. Instead, they're just going to say yes or no. Their yes will be yes and their no will be no. But if they say they're going to do it, they will do it. If they're not going to do it, they're just going to tell you no right off the bat. They're going to keep their word to the best of their abilities. Look at verse 38. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile will go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And for him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now the average scribe or Pharisee, they would never go beyond what the law allowed for vengeance. But the law allowed an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they were, surely, they were going to get that eye and they were going to get that tooth. However, those who are disciples of Jesus, they're not going to seek vengeance at all. In fact, if they're insulted, rather than getting even, they're going to let that insult stand and they may have to take another. Injustice may be committed against them, but they're still not going to get even. They may have to do things they don't want to do, but they're still not going to get even. Generosity will mark them, not vengeance. And then look at verse 43. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now the average scribe or Pharisee loved their neighbor. But they narrowly defined their neighbor in such a way that it really didn't apply to very many people. The scribe or the Pharisee also hated those they considered their enemies. Those who follow Jesus, those who are disciples of Christ, they will love their neighbor. And they will apply that to all people. They will not only love their neighbor, they will also love their enemy. And they will love their enemy to such an extent that they will bless those who curse them. They will do good to those who hate them. And they will pray for those who spitefully use them. They do this because they know. That's what God is like. Their heavenly father doesn't just love the good. He loves all people. He blesses. He pours out his blessings on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And they want to be like their father. And they also know. That even the worst sort of sinners love those who love them. 
And there's nothing really praiseworthy or notable about loving those who love you and hating those who hate you. That's not a higher standard of righteousness that that determines or demonstrates being born again and being like Jesus. No, they understand that they want to be like their father. They want to be like Jesus. So they will love and they will do good to people. Whether they're good or lovely or kind to them. In return. That is the high standard. Of how disciples in Jesus. Are to live. I mean this is the way every believer. Is to live. This isn't second level. This isn't in years to come. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And this is the high standard of righteousness you're to strive to attain. Because that's how Jesus lived. That's exactly the way Jesus lived his life. And we are to emulate him. So the key truth for today is that when, we be, when we've been made righteous by Jesus, we begin to live righteous like Jesus. When we've been made righteous by Jesus, we begin to live righteous like Jesus. Let's bow our heads and and close our eyes. In a minute we'll take time and pray. Respond to what Jesus has said to us. But right now, we, we should feel a weight to what we've just talked about. Because there is a weight to accepting our personal lack of righteousness. There is a weight to having to turn to Jesus for any righteousness at all. In mercy, there is a weight to living to the high standard of Jesus' righteousness. Everything about what we've talked about this morning is contrary to what the world tells us. Everything about what we've talked about this morning is contrary to our natural inclinations. Naturally, we want to point at our good deeds and say, look at how good I am. Naturally, we don't want to have to depend on anyone else to be good enough. Naturally, we want to love those who love us and hate those who hate us. And the natural inclination of our hearts will be to push back against this and say, no, no. But right now in this time, resist the urge to push back against Jesus. Because that's who you're pushing back against. Not me. Against Jesus. That's simply what he said. Let the weight of Jesus' words rest on you. And ask yourself questions. What do I see as I look at my life? Do I see a life marked by being made righteous by Jesus? And then living righteous like Jesus. 
And if not, recognize the weight of Jesus' words for what it is. Jesus telling you there's work to be done. Jesus dealing with you as His child. Someone He cares about. Someone drawing you to something better than what you're currently experiencing or living. Jesus loves you. And He wants two things for your life. One, He wants to save you. That's a choice everyone has to make on their own. They must believe Jesus. They must call on Jesus. That is a choice that is done individually. Jesus wants that for you though. The second thing Jesus wants is for you to live like He did. He wants you to live by these high standards of righteousness. He'll help you. He'll empower you. But you have to bring a willingness to the table to do these things. Or at the very least, a willingness to be made willing. So we're going to take time and pray. And you use this time to call on Jesus. If you need to surrender to Him as Savior and Lord, you call out to Him to save you and make you righteous. And then ask Him to help you to live righteous. If you're a believer, and you can see that you're not living by the high standards of Jesus' righteous, you confess that as sin. And then you ask for His help to live the way He wants you to live. We're going to take a few minutes to pray right now. Use this time to call on Jesus.